Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for this week's edition of the Sabbath School Commentary. This week's lesson is entitled Deuteronomy in the New Testament. So we see the teaching from the book of Deuteronomy in the New Testament. And we're going to begin by just jumping right into this week's lesson, into Sunday's lesson, which is entitled, It is Written. We assess Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And so what's just happened is that Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. And when he was baptized, the Bible says that the heavens opened up and the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus like a dove. And a voice was heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so God affirms Jesus as Messiah. Now the Bible says in Acts chapter 10 in verse 38, that it was at the baptism of Jesus that he was anointed. And the name, the term Messiah means anointed of God. So he was the anointed deliverer that God sent to save his people. And that was happening there at his baptism. And so once again, I remind you that God said about Jesus when he was baptized, this is my beloved son. So God affirms Jesus, his identity, his mission in that statement. Then the Bible says that the spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then it says after 40 days of fasting, he was hungry and then the tempter came to him. Now, this is a lesson. The tempter comes to us in our moments of weakness. So Jesus has not enjoyed physical food for 40 days. And so the Bible says he's hungry. And while he's hungry, that's when the tempter comes. So he's been really in, in isolation without the, the support of other people. And he's not been able to sustain himself physically with food. And that's when the devil comes to tempt him. The devil comes at opportune times that are best to him succeeding in deceiving, in tempting, and tripping us up. And this is what he did to Jesus. And so the Bible says that the devil spoke to Christ and said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. This is interesting because God said, this is my beloved son. And the devil says, if you are the son of God. Now, the temptation is to not believe what God said about him. So the word of God declared that this was the son of God. So if Jesus accepts the challenge of the devil, then in essence, he's rejecting the word of God as it concerns himself and his mission. And so that, therefore, he would have sinned had he, had he followed Satan. And the bait on the hook of Satan, on the temptation hook of Satan, the bait was the food, his hunger. You're hungry. My temptation is tailor-made for someone who's hungry. And so I want to get you to doubt God's word. I want to get you to forget what he said. And so in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your difficulty, when you're without human support and you haven't nourished yourself with physical food, I'm going to insinuate that you're not the son of God, that what God's word said about you is not correct. And I'm going to get you to try to prove yourself to me, to prove yourself to me. And Jesus does not take the bait. He does not try to prove himself to Satan, who he is. And he knows who he is because of what God's word said about him. 
Now, this had to be such a hard temptation. He probably didn't feel like the son of God at that time. Emaciated, hungry, lonely. This is Jesus. That's the condition he's in. And he may have felt like the need to prove himself that, yeah, I am the son of God. Let me prove that this is what I am. But he doesn't take the bait. He just rests in what God had said. This is his strength. He answers Satan here. And the way that he answers him is by quoting a verse from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And but what's happening in Deuteronomy 8, it's very interesting. God says, like, I've brought you into the wilderness and I did it to humble you, to see if you would test, if you would keep my, my commands, if you would be faithful and to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's what Jesus quotes. He says, listen, Satan, uh, man does not live by bread alone. I'm not going to be controlled by my appetite. I'm not going to be enticed into your deception through hunger, pain. No, man does not live by bread alone. It's not just physical food that keeps us alive. But truly living, truly being is following God's word, accepting God's word and believing it. And so man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so Jesus's defense is the word of God. He trusts the word of God. He accepts the word of God and he uses the word of God to understand his reality. And this defends him from the tempter. This defends him from the tempter. And we can do the same. Now, just an interesting side point. Jesus was the son of Joseph. And Joseph received a dream when Jesus was a little boy because it was a death decree on all the boys in the region that Jesus lived in. And it was given by King Herod who was hearing about this Messiah, and he wanted no threats or no challenges to his authority, his supremacy. And so therefore, he signed a dictum to kill all of the, the, the male children under three in the region around where Jesus lived. And so Joseph was warned, and he went to Egypt, and he fled to Egypt to be protected from King Herod. And so then after you know a period of time, the Bible says that he comes out of Egypt with Jesus. And the Bible does something very in interesting. Matthew does something very interesting. He quotes... Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, where originally God was speaking about Israel. And it says, I have called my son out of Israel. And so God calls Israel, sorry, I called my son out of Egypt. And God is speaking about Israel, the nation. And God called Israel his son because he related to the nation of Israel as a father relates to a son. Matthew takes this passage, which originally applied to the Israelite nation coming out of Egypt, being called by God out of Egypt. To Jesus, who was brought out of Egypt by his father Joseph. And so Matthew applies a text that originally applied to Israel to Jesus. Now, the Israelite nation, after being freed from Egyptian slavery, they crossed the Red Sea. And the Bible in uh, the, the Apostle Paul's writings in 1st or 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 says that this was, you no, know, it's 1st or 2nd Corinthians 10. I'm just thinking, I'm just, I didn't look up the verse, but. First or second Corinthians 10, he says that that was their baptism, that they were baptized by going through the Red Sea. So the Israelite nation leaves Egypt. That's the son of God declared by Hosea because he related to the nation as a father relates to his son. And they were his witnesses upon earth. He brings them out of Egypt. Then he brings them through the Red Sea, which was like a baptism experience. And then they go into the wilderness after their unwillingness to, to go into the promised land right away. And they go there for 40 years. And, and it was in that time frame, at the end of that time frame, time frame that God says to them in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, that I brought you to the wilderness to teach you. 
that, that you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that per- proceeds from my mouth. That's what brings true life. That's how you live. That's what's to define life and what you should live by, not by your urges, your impulses, your inclinations, or your appetites. And this is what God says. So can you see that Jesus is following in the footsteps of ancient Israel and he's succeeding where they failed? They went into the wilderness for 40 years and they grumbled against God perpetually. But Jesus goes into the wilderness and is deprived of physical food for 40 days. And he doesn't sin, not even in thought. So he succeeds where Israel failed. They grumbled and complained all the time. Jesus didn't. When they were tempted by the devil, they did not stand upon the sure foundation of God's word. Not at all. They gave in on multiple occasions. Yeah, it, it just, you just see Jesus as a little boy called out of Egypt. The Israelite nation called out of Egypt. The Israelite nation is baptized through the Red Sea experience. Jesus is baptized at the Jordan River by John the Baptist. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Just, and, and by the way, Matthew, you know, he, he does this throughout the, his, his gospel where he says the, the, the scriptures needed to be fulfilled. And he applies something that originally, a text of the Old Testament that originally applied to the Israelite nation, and he applies it to Jesus. It's fascinating. All right, guys, let's move on real quickly to Monday's lesson. Now, the lesson says some really cool stuff about the Hebrew phrase in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19, that's interpreted as a respecter of persons. The Bible says, it teaches, in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Quoted in the New Testament multiple times that God is no respecter of persons. He cannot be bribed and he is not unfair in his judgment, in his assessment and calculations. The lesson just brings out great insights there. And I'm going to leave that with you, that study with you. I just want to comment just briefly on the idea that God is no respecter of persons and and what good news this is. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that if there is a willing mind, if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted not according to what a man doesn't have, but according to what he does have. So if you want God, God wants you. Whether you're tall or short, slow or fast, intelligent or unintelligent, rich or poor, all those things do not come into God's computation when he's considering whether or not he wants you. He's no respecter of persons. When God makes a decision, when God considers a situation, he's not impressed by someone's stature or someone's position in the world. He cannot be bribed. He sees things clearly. He sees through the externals into the heart. And he knows that we're all broken. He knows that we're all fallen. He knows that we're all twisted on a moral level. And if he sees humility, if he sees willingness, if he sees sincerity, then he wants you. He wants you. The Bible says that God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. Peter says that. And so if I want God, he wants me. If I humbly accept, he willingly receives And that's just really good news. Further to to this fact, God doesn't prefer a specific people group over another, right? He doesn't, he's not prejudicial or preferential. He judges with the objective standard of his righteous requirements. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, through the grace of God, because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, God reaches out to everyone. And whosoever will, let them come. Whosoever, just come. And if you want him, he'll want you. And he's not a respecter of persons. And you don't have to be spectacular for God to accept you. He just accepts you. Whatever your natural, physical, intellectual limitations, moral limitations, if you want him, he wants you. And that is just such cool news. And the lesson here brings that out in Monday's lesson. Tuesday uh, talks about 
being cursed on a tree. And, and it's really interesting because texts from Deuteronomy are quoted in the book of Galatians. Now, many people in the Christian world believe that in the Old Testament dispensation or the Old Testament time frame, that the way for a person to be accepted by God was by keeping his commands, keeping his laws. Or in other words, the way you would be just in the sight of a holy God is that you would obey him perfectly. And that was the means of salvation in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, since Jesus has come in that time frame, in that dispensation, the, 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 the era of grace has come. And the way that a person is accepted by God is through the grace of God. Now, this couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus says that the Old Testament scriptures, they are they which testify of me. Now, if they testify of Jesus, surely they testify of the gospel. And the Israelites, they were brought out of Egypt. They were effectively saved from slavery by God, who was their deliverer. Now, was that because they were so righteous in themselves and because of all of their good works? They had not even yet received the law in like a written form. And so surely we could not say that the Old Testament Israelite was delivered from Egyptian slavery because of their good works. The Bible says, the preamble of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, it says, uh, I am the Lord thy God, which has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You will have no other gods before me. Okay, wait a second. God declares, I'm your savior. I'm your deliverer. And now I'll give you my commandments. Okay, this hardly communicates the idea, the notion that people are saved in the Old Testament dispensation because of their good works. Like, I just find it fascinating that anyone would ever even think that, that any human being on this side of eternity could somehow merit their acceptance with God because they behaved so well. That's just unbelievable. That really shows a lack of understanding of God's righteousness. Like, to think that any fallen sinful person on this planet at any point in time could have been just in the sight of God, right? Because of their law keeping. But this is the, the sentiment of many people in the Christian world. Now, I want to make a bold statement. I think that's, I don't want to sound judgmental here, guys, but I just want to say what I think is true because I can think of no other reason. I think that the reason for this is that sometimes people want the benefits of the faith without the sacrifices of the faith, right? Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. And so many people want the, the benefits of heaven, the, the eventual outcomes of commitment to Christ and God without commitment to Christ and God. So Jesus says, if any man come after me, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. In essence, what he's saying is if any man will come after me, you have to come after me. And so a religion that is pleasant to the natural self is what a lot of people want. And these ideas, these concepts are, are, are communicated that, well, that back in then, in those days, they were saved by law keeping. Really? Who? Seriously? That, that teaching is nowhere in the Old Testament. I'd say it's a Christian myth. It doesn't exist. But in the book of Galatians, in particular, chapter 3, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Okay? And then he quotes Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26. And it's where the, Moses says, unless you keep or you respect or regard all of this law, you're under a curse. And any Old Testament believer could read that passage any Israelite could read that passage, and if they were honest with themselves, they would know. I haven't kept all of the law, therefore, I'm under the curse. So you would have to search, you would have to seek in the sacrificial system, 
in the testimony of the prophets, in the writing of the Torah, a means by which you may escape the curse of the law. And you would find it. You would find it. That the types and symbols of sanctuary worship. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Thy way of salvation, O God, is in the sanctuary. David understood this. He understood this. Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He understood that he needed a new heart. He knew, understood he was under the curse of the law, that he was condemned by his natural tendency to sin. And yeah, like you could discover within the confines of the Old Testament, the true teaching of the gospel of grace. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say things like in Romans 15 and verse 4, Whatever was written before time was written for our learning, so that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. Think about that. He's the great apostle to the Gentiles who wrote the book of Romans. The most comprehensive teaching in the history of the world on the gospel. The person who wrote that said, I'm taught by the Old Testament scriptures. It gives me hope. It's for my learning. All scripture, he said, is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, correction, uh, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. And so there you have it. According to the Apostle Paul, the Old Testament was to instruct us in righteousness, or you could learn the path of righteousness from the Old Testament. In Galatians 3.10, the Apostle Paul is not saying that keeping the law means you're under the curse. What he's saying is if you rely on keeping the law to be accepted by God, you're under the curse. That's what he's saying, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we have this mistaken notion in the new, in the, in the, not you necessarily or me or, you know, anyone in particular, but I think a lot of Christians have this mistaken idea that faithfulness to God, that obedience to God's law is somehow legalism. Where this idea came from, I have no idea. Keeping God's law is no more legalism than not cheating on your wife, which is a part of God's law, right? Like, you don't cheat on your wife. You're a legalist. Like, what? Who? How does that follow, right? Like, how does it follow that obeying God equates to legalism? No, legalism is not obedience. Legalism is the idea that I recommend myself to God by my works or that my good works obligate God to save me or that I am just in the sight of a holy God because I have followed God's commands. That's legalism. That is legalism, essentially. And But keeping God's law, is, is that's not legalism, but keeping God's law with the idea that now God owes you salvation or that you have earned salvation, no, that's legalism. And if you think that way, if you believe that way, according to Paul, you're under a curse. And according to Deuteronomy 27, 26, you're cursed. And that's what Paul was doing. That's what Paul was thinking. He saw that he was teaching, he believed that he was teaching the Old Testament accurately in the book of Galatians. He, he really did. And that's why he's quoting the Old Testament authoritatively. He's a teacher of the scriptures, the Old Testament texts of, of scripture. Uh, I would like to say that the law of God is God's love expressed. He wants to help us and bless us. He wants to give us the good life. And he does that by giving us statutes, commandments, laws, governance, guidance. All of his laws are expressions of himself, and he's good and wise and intelligent and gracious and wonderful and amazing. And so he gives us laws to give us the good life, to help us to know how to live. They're rules for living and rules for happiness. They define happiness. And so 
really, when we keep God's law, we are benefited. And isn't that what Deuteronomy says in multiple places? Keep these commandments for your good. Like, they're for your good, so keep them. They're not arbitrary. They're good. And so, yet you're not keeping the law to be saved. You're keeping the law because you appreciate me, you respect me, you love me. You love the fact that I've saved you and that I'm gracious and good and you can trust me. And you're going to want to do what I tell you to do because why not? Wouldn't that be smart? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Like, I engineered the universe. I designed everything in it. And I designed you. I'm your maker and I'm your savior and I love you. And I want you, and I'm going to give you now good instructions. Why wouldn't you want to follow them? You'll just be bent. So I think it's really important that we maintain this distinction. Obedience is not legalism. And we just got to make sure we, we remember that always. Yeah, amen. Yeah, moving right along. I want to now just spend the rest of our time in this commentary on Wednesday. It's entitled, The Prophet Like Unto Thee. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 15, Moses says something amazing. He says to the people of Israel, on the borders of the promised land and on the edge of the desert, God is going to raise up a prophet for you who's like me. And that's the one you're going to listen to. And if you don't listen to him, it's not going to go well for you. The end of that verse, that's my translation. Okay, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 22, Peter quotes that verse in one of his sermons as to substantiate his claims that Jesus is the one. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 37, Stephen uses that passage as well. And I want to tell you, for, for years I would contemplate how Peter and Stephen used that text so as if it's just such a convincing text to prove that Jesus was who they claimed he was. And, and I was a little bit puzzled by that. I was a little bit confused. And, but then I meditated and contemplated a bit on the ministry of Moses, right? And let me just walk you through this real quick and break this down for you and show you what a powerful evidence Deuteronomy 18.15 is. To put a powerful evidence that Deuteronomy 18.15 is for the claims of Christ, okay? That for Jesus being the Messiah. So Moses was an Israelite who was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, meaning he was entitled to the life of a prince, okay? He was part of the royal family of one of the most powerful and glorious dynasties in the history of the world. And so he could have lived his entire life as, as a child of the princess in this glorious kingdom of Egypt. He could have had a beautiful wife, lived in a beautiful estate, and enjoyed all of the finer things of life. But he chose to identify with the Israelite nation, the slaves, the oppressed. He didn't feel good about staying in his mansion estates and in his palatial estate while there were people suffering in a horrible circumstance. And so he chose to come down from glory and work to free slaves. That was Moses. And he tries to free the people, but he fails. And he gets run off into the wilderness of Midian for 40. In the wilderness, he encounters God at the end of the 40 years. And God says, I want to send you to the people. You're their deliverer. You're my chosen one. And after a debate with God, God says to him, hey, listen, I will empower you to do miracles, to do signs, to do wonders, to convince the people that I have sent you to save that you are in fact the one I'm sending to save. And okay, so the one who comes from the royal estate, from the palace, from the exalted position to identify with slaves, to work for their freedom, is also the one that God gives the power to perform miracles, to convince those he's being sent to save that he is their deliverer sent from God. It's, it's fascinating. And then after the plagues fall upon Egypt and the 10th plague is about to come, it's Moses who educates the people about what they need to do in order to be saved. 
They have to, a sacrifice has to be offered and then applied. A perfect lamb. And the blood of that lamb needs to be put on their doorposts, on their houses. And then the death angel will pass over them when he comes. And so a sacrifice is offered by Moses on behalf of the people. And it needs to be applied to their lives to be saved. Now, when the people go out into the wilderness, if they sin, they have a mediator. They have an intercessor. Who is it? It's Moses. He intercedes on behalf of the people. When the people dance around the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, um, who comes to their defense? God says, listen, I'm going to start over, Moses. I'll destroy all the rest of the children of Abraham, and I'll, I'll create a new nation through you. Because uh, th- these people are stiff-necked and hard-hearted, and there's just about nothing I can do to change that. And then Moses says, okay, if you're going to take them, y- you take me too. And so he intercedes on their behalf. And delivers them in that way as well. And the Bible tells us in the book of Jude, and it's Jude verse 9, it says that Michael, the archangel, when contending over the body of Moses, did not bring a railing accusation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So think about that. Moses died and didn't get to go into the promised land with the Israelites, but he was resurrected and taken to heaven. And that's why we see him in Matthew uh, chapter 17 coming down to comfort Jesus and inspire Jesus before Jesus goes to the cross. It's awesome. Here we are. Here we are. Ministry of Moses identifies with slaves voluntarily and works for their salvation. And he has to forsake the passing pleasures of sin and Egypt in order to do it. Um, So he condescends to be with slaves to work for their salvation. Then he does signs and wonders to show the ones God sent him to save that he was in fact the sent of God. Then he offers them a sacrifice prescription that allows them to be saved from death if applied to their door, applied to their homes, applied to their lives. And then when they're on their way to the promised land, on their way to the land of promise that God would give them rest in, when they fail, when they falter, when they sin, they have an advocate, they have a mediator, they have an intercessor, it's Moses. Now, Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that God's going to raise up a prophet like myself. Now, does, does that ring, does that, that like ring a bell in your head? Like Jesus leaves the courts of heaven to identify with those who are slaves of sin. And then he does signs and wonders to show us all that he was the sent of God, sent to save us. And more than this, he's, he dies and then was resurrected and he's, he goes to be our intercessor. This is powerful. Deuteronomy 18.15, one of the most powerful and compelling evidences in the Bible that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God, the savior of the world, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has reconciled us to God. I think that's amazing. Now, if you assess Deuteronomy 18, I want to just give you a basic outline of the passage. Moses is warning people against seeking mediums and sorcerers and spiritists and those types of of people. And in Israel, on several occasions, by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's basically death penalties in the Mosaic law there against necromancing and witchcraft and sorcery and these kinds of things. And that's the context in which this promise of the deliverer comes. This is the one you listen to. This is the one you hear. This is the one that you counsel with. This is the one who guides you with my word, with my truth. Not witches, not sorcerers, not astrologers, not soothsayers, not that kind of stuff. But no, the prophet that I will send. Now, this, there's so much practical counsel in this for us, guys. 
We don't have to be consulting sorcerers to be consulting sorcerers. Just consult the, the, just consult, just get guidance from the entertainment industry, which is informed by the same satanic spirit that inspired the people who looked into crystal balls 4,500 years ago, okay? Like, we should find guidance from the prophets. The Bible says, surely God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So we, we gain access to God's knowledge, God's wisdom through the prophets that he sends. That's a general lesson from the passage of scripture. This life can be confusing. We can be disoriented. We can be sad and perplexed and confused. It's a wild world that we live in down here. The world of sin and chaos and disorder. But And so we might seek for enlightenment. We might seek for help and assistance. And God says, don't go there. Don't go there. There's no help for you there. That's cursed. That's evil. That's wicked. And if you go there, you're giving Satan access to your mind and to your heart. So don't go there. But I'm going to raise up a prophet who's like Moses. And that's the one you want to listen to. And then the chapter goes on to say, but how do you know who are the true prophets? How do you know? The ones who are sent of me, what they say comes true. Okay, it comes true. Now, I want to leave you guys with this. Has what Jesus said rung true to you and come true before you? And I would say, in my experience, that's absolutely the case. And I don't want to explicate on this too much or dialogue with you too much about this. I just want to leave you with that. Jesus is the scent of God and he is the prophet. Okay. He is the premier prophet, the premier spokesperson for God. And he's the one that we should hear. He's the one that we should listen to. And Deuteronomy is telling us that. And guys, Deuteronomy, Old Testament, second law, I don't know about you, but throughout the course of this quarterly study time, this this quarter's study, throughout the course of this quarter, I have just been more and more impressed with how the gospel of God's grace is taught in the book of Deuteronomy and the Old Testament. it's, It's just so beautiful. It's just so awesome. And praise God for the Holy Spirit who helps us to see that. But Jesus is the one. He's the scent of God. He's the teacher. He's the one that we go to for wisdom, for counsel, for guidance. And it's his teaching, it's his understanding that defines our reality. So God bless you guys. Thank you for joining me for this commentary today. I hope that you enjoy these commentaries as much as the Sabbath School Department in North New South Wales enjoys, you know, producing them for you. They're geared at getting you excited about Sabbath School to give you some helpful hints uh, and really just to hang out with you because we love you and we know you love us. So listen, thank you guys so much for joining me. I look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Bye.